0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Professor Michelle Carnes uh, about a book uh, that she published with, uh, with, with Chicago University Press. The book is called Medieval Marvels and Fictions in the Latin West and Islamic World. Uh, Michelle Carnes is an Associate Professor of English and History and Philosophy of Science at the Univers- University of Notre Dame. She's the author of Imagination, Meditation, and Cognition in the Middle Ages and the editor of the journal Studies in the Age of Chaucer. Michelle, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, this is such a fascinating book you talk about there's literature there's philosophy there's western philosophy eastern philosophy and i must say i was uh, i'm not very familiar with uh, islamic philosophy so i had to read parts more carefully and do a little bit more research but i was absolutely fascinated by your approach to this topic but before starting talking about the book can you tell us a little bit about yourself how you became interested in philosophy and literature and how why you decided to write this book
0: when i was in grad school at penn i became interested in how people in the middle ages understood literature um, according to their own kind of theory of the mind and it got me taking philosophy classes Um, and then as i was writing my first book um, on imagination in medieval religious literature i just kept coming across arabic sources that have been translated into latin and Once I got tenure, literally the day after I got tenure at Stanford, I decided to learn Arabic and I started on the alphabet um, so that I could not just read the sources that have been translated into Latin, but read more broadly. And uh, and that's continued to be the case. Imagination, the faculty of imagination has continued to be the central um, topic of my scholarship and the concept of imagination in the Latin West was so profoundly formulated by Arabic philosophers, like Avicenna and Averroes, um, that the kind of topic just pushed me to uh, expand the boundaries that I was working under.
1: And uh, in the book, you talk about uh, marvels, but let's come up with a definition first. Um, what do you mean by Marvel? And then in your the first chapter, you, you you discuss how it's interconnected with other fields of natural philosophy. And you discuss many authors from both the Islamic world and also Latin West. I know that we don't have time to go through all those authors, so I'll leave it to you to pick one or two from uh, from either Islamic philosophy or Latin West and talk about them as well and see how they define this idea of Marvel and its connection with natural philosophy.
0: So Marvels are things that happen in the natural world, they're not supernatural phenomena, they're not miracles, um, but they're hard to explain. And um, philosophers approach them with the conviction that they can be understood, but natural the natural world isn't understood well enough right now um, in their present to account for, you know, how... Um, one person can bewitch someone else um, or how a smaller, skinnier person can throw a javelin further. Um, So Marvel is a really big category. It's just anything that's hard to explain, but that's fundamentally natural. Um, And philosophers embraced Marvels as a way to think through how the natural world operates. So, you know, if, say, um, you know, Avicenna wanted to understand how prophecy worked then he would, you know, try to delve into its natural mechanisms, uh, so that he could understand how prophecy is possible in the world that we live in. Um, And similarly, um, with Albertus Magnus, or um, with Thomas Aquinas, you know, when they found something perplexing, like fossils, you know, what is a fossil? Like, what accounted for this, like, you know, piece of rock that has the shape of an animal inside of it, then they didn't know how to explain it. But they thought that The question was interesting and they should try to think through how nature could make that possible so they weren't really writing with conviction saying this is a hundred percent real and this is definitely how it happens it's more of a conjectural um discourse if these things exist how might we explain them in a way that helps us understand nature better
1: Mm -hmm. and um The the role of imagination is very very important in your book you talk about dreams visions and prophecy prophecy in in creating these marvels can you expand on that please
0: so my first book focused on imagination and religious literature and i noticed that imagination was also used to explain various marvels um if i bewitch you uh it's usually a process that begins with my imagination i want something badly i imagine it say i want to wound you um, because I'm jealous of you. My imagination communicates itself um, to your imagination um, through usually the multiplication of species like images basically that um, shoot forth from my eyes and connect me to you. Um, And so I act on your imagination in turn, um, especially if you are susceptible to that kind of influence and so I was intrigued by how many marvels were explained through the faculty of imagination. And I thought that could probably help us to understand a little bit more about how marvels work, because the conversation about them in scholarship, certainly um, for Western Europe, has really gotten kind of stuck into this. I think, unhelpful opposition between what's true and what's false. And I think that what's interesting about marvels is that they might be true and they might be false, and um, mostly they're creative possibilities. Even Alexander Neckham says, even nature uh, uses her own imagination to create marvels. So um, imagination just helps to explain how marvels could occupy this place between the real and the false um, as a place of just kind of possibility and conjecture.
1: And you also come up with two categories for Marvel uh, interior, but we don't. You don't. I don't think you use the word exterior, but I'll leave it to you to explain. So, what are these two categories? And I'm really interested to know if the second category, where you talk about it, is completely detached from imagination.
0: So I distinguish interior from exterior marvels. Um, in a way that the sources don't. So for interior marvels, I'm thinking about prophecy and dreams and visions um, and external marvels, more things like telekinesis, the ability to change the weather, um, bewitchment. Um, So marvels that act outside of your own body. So like I said, the sources don't actually distinguish these two categories, but it was easier to analyze them if I distinguished them because nobody was surprised that you could change your own body you know i get embarrassed and my cheeks turn red um obviously mere thoughts affect our body in this obvious way um avicenna's example is the wet dream it's not really surprising that um our kind of um our souls uh for medieval philosophers would affect our bodies but to affect someone else's body was you know a definitely more complicated um situation so um it was useful for me to talk about the the interior marvel separately because they also kind of relied on some different um, mechanisms. But the second category of Marvel, things like telekinesis and moving objects um, of various sorts still tends to rely on imagination. In order to make that happen, certainly bewitchment centrally depends on imagination. Obviously, when you're talking about marvels that don't involve people, um, then you're not really dealing so much with imagination anymore. Um, but for the most part, still, if I affect the external world, I tend to do it through my imagination, not imagination alone, but usually imagination in concert with desire, um, with the, the the spirit, the soul, um, its various powers that give it kind of authority over the material world.
1: And uh, what is how did marvel or imagination have impacts or effects on foreign bodies or objects even in natural you talk about even natural elements like and weather
0: yeah um so there's a story in in marco polo about um Mm -hmm. a man who makes a mountain move um There's uh, also a story about, you know, a a common story was that obviously you can tell it originates in um, Arabic philosophy because it's about a man who can make a camel fall over uh, simply through the power of his imagination. So the most common mechanism to explain that was that... um, there was a theory called the multiplication of species, which held that um, between the person who's looking and the thing that's seen, there's a kind of constant series of images. Um, This was a way to account for Aristotle's belief that action never happens at a distance. So the species connect, they're invisible, but they connect, um, you know, two objects, um, the thing being seen and the seer. So um, the idea is usually that, you know, like they give the example of a wall that um, you know has a red painting on it, and around the red painting, the white wall can look a little bit red. So um, clearly, there's some kind of bleeding in your visual field um, from the red object to the white wall, and they thought this was kind of evidence of the um, the the sending off, the emitting of species. So the basic theory for how you would move a mountain is that you would, um, you know, basically send these images out into the world. Al-Kindi thought that the world was filled with these rays, that they were all... Any any object was connected with any other through these rays. And that you were basically harnessing this kind of power that started in the heavens um, by focusing your attention on this other object. And it would give you something of the power that like the cosmos has over individual people. Um, so that way, you know, if you're harnessing this power through your imagination, then you're able to kind of reshape the world um, in its image. Most clearly they thought a pregnant woman would be able to change the size, shape, color of her fetus based on what she imagined. But the same principles at play um, in Bewitchment, where you're just not acting on a body within you, but one that's outside of you.
1: And, and in discussions about Marvel, Latin Arabic discussions about Marvel, how were they interrelated? Were the there any kinds of commonalities? Dis-
0: yeah, the dominant discourse was definitely the Arabic material. So one of the reasons why I compare these two discussions is because they're both ultimately based um, in Aristotelian philosophy um, in a way that like makes them intelligible to one another, um, even where they differ. They're both kind of playing by the same rules. So, um, you know, in the 12th century, the Latin West was only just rediscovering Arabic philosophy, oh Greek philosophy through Arabic translations and commentaries. So it was already Arabic philosophers who had been working with um, ancient materials and were trying to explain various marvels like um, a head that prophecies after death, the oracular head, um, you know, various kind of um, improbable phenomena but they approached them specifically as explainable phenomena. And it seems to be that their approach to um, these kind of natural conundra um, was extremely influential in the Latin West and helped them kind of spark their own investigations. I mean, Edward Grant, the big authority on natural philosophy, says that natural philosophy begins in the Latin West in the 13th century. I don't know if that's true, but it is definitely... um, more inherited um, than a homegrown phenomenon. So, um, because this approach to marvels was so interesting to uh, philosophers in the Latin West, they, you know, had more and more Arabic works translated uh, into Latin, so that they could study more fully what the discussion was that was so much more advanced um, in Arabic than it would be for a long time in Latin.
1: And uh, I, with my next question, I guess we need to. Uh... Define some 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 of the terminology as well. So it's about how natural philosophers considered Marvel to be phenomena, and that can have logical possibilities. It's uh, I must say that I found that chapter a bit difficult for myself to understand because I don't have that background in philosophy, uh, and I tried to come up with the best question and as as, as general as possible so that you could expand on that. Because you also talk okay. about marvels if if they if they thought about marvels as a source of truth or not.
0: Yeah, those are both good questions, and and I appreciate your digging through chapters that aren't always super user friendly. Um, so, uh, marvels are logically possible in the sense that there's nothing um that makes it makes them impossible. Basically, so you know God through miracles can do things that the natural world can't normally do, but marvels have to follow the rules of what's possible for the natural world without direct divine intervention. So. Philosophers talk about them as non-impossibilities. Um, so, the natural world could um, create, um, you know, uh, a serpent that is able to burn without, you know, to catch on fire without burning up, say. So, if we any marvel has to be logically possible uh, in order for philosophers to entertain it but that's not a very strong, um, limitation. So logical, I mean, God too, can't do anything that's logically impossible according to medieval philosophers. Um, so, um, Peter Damien's example is that he can't restore a woman's virginity because that would just be, um, that would like break the rules. Um, he can, um, you know, make nature work differently than it normally does. Um, but he's also hindered by um, logical, like the the constraints of what's logically possible. So you have everything that's naturally possible. um, And then you have logical possibility, um, which is a kind of species of that. Um, Marvels, yeah, Marvels are definitely linked to the kind of a search for truth among philosophers. Um, Aristotle's contention was that um, anything that makes us marvel or wonder Provokes inquiry. And so that's what philosophers always start with, in his view. Um, Philosophers begin with something they don't understand, they marvel at it, and then they try to explain it. So there is a kind of underlying desire to understand the truth of the world um, without really depending on whether a particular marvel itself is true. You know, they talk about the same marvels over the ages, like. A woman who's menstruating can stain a mirror. If she looks into a new mirror, she's gonna stain it um, with a reddish hue. That was in Aristotle, um, but that example is used by Isidore. It's it's used for many centuries afterwards. So they're not so invested in the particular truth of any one Marvel, but inquiring into marvels generally will help you understand the natural world better um, in a way that is going to bring you closer to the truth
1: and uh, what was the role of poets or literature in helping philosophers define this marvel as a creative force
0: yeah i thought that that was really fascinating the way that philosophers keep quoting um poets was really surprising to me um to go back to marvels when albertus Mag- i'm sorry to have fossils when albertus magnus is talking about them he talks about Medusa and how she could fossilize people. And that for him is, and he says it's a fable. He doesn't think it's true, but it's useful to him because it helps him conceptualize these kind of sometimes outlandish possibilities and to think through how they might actually operate in the natural world. So that's one of the things I'm most invested in the book is is, is showing that marvels aren't, aren't truth claims. Um, they can be conjectural, they can be hypothetical, and you can just that philosophers can just ponder how they might work. And so poetry in that sense can help just widen the field um, of what marvels might be and how they might kind of resonate in um in the world. And Aristotle, when he said that philosophers begin with wonder, he said that poets also depend on wonder they don't try to explain it away but they try to inculcate it so he thought that philosophers and poets were similarly invested in marvels and they draw on the same marvels all the time and that's one of the that was one of the puzzles that got me writing this book i was not sure what to make of the fact that marvels become kind of ubiquitous in literature and philosophy at the same time. Um, and, you know, literature is supposed to deal with things that are made up and philosophy is supposed to deal with things that are true. And how can marvels, even the same marvels, be so central in both discussions? And, Ultimately, you know, what I was looking for is a way for like poetry and philosophy to have the same definition of marvels. Um, and that's why I talk about them as creative possibilities. Obviously, there's some differences in the discussions uh, between philosophers and poets, but at the at the bottom line is the same that marvels are non-impossibilities um, that you know spark interest and inquiry and um and test people, um, their knowledge, their uh, devotion to someone else um in ways that are that are surprisingly similar
1: and um w- one of the most fascinating parts of your book was uh your discussion about travel writing and how uh, factual and imaginary geographies were described and they 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 kind of created a, a form of uncertainty regarding what's real or what's unreal can you talk about this chapter please
0: yeah um I had always kind of avoided travel literature, but it was sort of inevitable that I would need to talk about it. So, um, you know, travel literature in some ways gestures at its own reliability. It tells you, you know, you can get from one country to another in three days if you're walking. But if you take this other route, it's going to take you, you know, four months. And, you know, they're very precise um, about uh, distances and Um, where one country is relative to another and sometimes it's accurate but at the same time they talk about people with three heads and they claim to have seen them Um, and so ultimately I thought it was useful to kind of think of travel literature as um, creating a spectrum where there are just straight up facts um, that are still considered to be facts um, about the about you know, the geographical world. Um, And then there are um, stories uh, that the writers had heard about for centuries um, in their own lives, of course, for their whole lives. And um, were, you know, they needed to account for those too. And so it seems to me that travel literature is really invested in the extraordinariness of the world. The world is the greatest marvel um, and, you know, you didn't want to foreclose possibilities so it's not like they're lying um they're just saying you know the natural world there's is 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 full of marvels we don't know what they all are and so let's like explore you know outlandish possibilities alongside um more uh clear clearer facts um and you know, leave the reader in this position where they don't really know where every, whether everything is true or not. Like, it's not like you can read travel literature and say, for sure, you know, this is true and this is false. And which is why I think it's funny that editors so often with medieval travel literature now have these footnotes explaining how this is false or this is true. And maybe we can explain this claim this way, because I just don't think it's something that the medieval writers really care that much about. I think they're presenting their reader with all sorts of kind of exciting stories and giving the reader kind of permission to think about whether they're real without really coming to a firm conclusion one way or the other.
1: And uh, what was the role of Marvels in romance literature and, uh, and, and the way Marvels helped create this state of, again, uncertainty about lovers, unfaithfulness, which is, I guess, it was a big theme in medieval literature. And again, you yeah. have a lot of examples. It would be great if we could talk about one of the examples that you bring up in the book.
0: Uh, great. So the role of marvels in romance has, has always been recognized. Um, marvels are central to romance and they're part of the reason why um, romance is, was supposed to lead to the novel, this kind of creating a fictive world um, that didn't need to abo- obey the laws of nature. But, you know, as I show, a lot of the ways that um, romance writers uh, talk about marvels is also how philosophers talk about marvels. Um, and it's not like an easy separation between the false marvels of poetry and the true uh, marvels of of uh, philosophy. But the marvels function a little differently. They don't need to be strictly possible or logically possible. Um, they can be, you know, um, You can wink at the reader and say, let's pretend that this fairy is real. Uh, So um, one of the examples that I use is the fairy in the 14th century romance, Melusine, who has special powers. She's able to see the future. She's able to shape certain events. Um, She turns into a dragon um, or kind of a mermaid every Saturday um, from the waist down. And she tells her husband that she will continue to help him like she can make him very prosperous they can have a really like rich and happy life if he just leaves her alone on these saturdays um, and doesn't peak um so he is left wondering whether she has these special powers to see the future because she's benevolent because she's a fairy um or whether she's a bad kind of fairy or a demon because you know, those, both of those groups were thought to have the ability to see the future um, and to know the past, other people's pasts. So he is sort of plagued by doubt and can't just accept the good fortune that he has and accept that she's benevolent. And so he peaks um, and that destroys everything. She ends up being a dragon uh, permanently. She has to leave him um, and their children. And he um, wasn't willing to believe that the Marvel uh, was innocuous um, or even just beneficial to him, he had to understand how it worked. And so Marvels often depend on others not scrutinizing them too carefully um, insofar as, you know, in the romance genre, you have to have faith in your beloved. And so if you really want to understand how the Marvel works, like the philosophers do, then you kind of destroy the Marvel. and and lose your beloved because you wanted to have certainty in an area where you were just supposed to have faith
1: Mm. and uh another let's say to me it was like a debunking thing because i used to think of marvel in terms of its magic and enchantments but in the book you talk about the role of marvel in creating scrutiny and change rather than being simple enchantment So that that's, I guess, another part that our listeners would be interested to know more about. I don't
0: want to deny, or um, I don't want to argue against enchantment. I think it's a nice idea. I just think Mm. it's broader than it has been kind of considered to be. So you know, enchantment doesn't need to be stupefaction. It can be, uh, but it doesn't need to be just kind of paralysis um, or or even kind of embarrassment um sometimes when you are full of wonder you you know you're just kind of sitting there like you're you're not you're not really able to speak coherently um you might say a stupid thing um so I wanted to make room for um intellectual inquiry I guess in the world of um wonder and enchantment Um, I wanted to show that um you know investing with Investing in the text and asking, you know, who are we supposed to believe? Say um, in this scene where prophecy is really important, can only add can can add a lot to our investment in the text and and to our own enchantment. Um, inquiry doesn't need to be you know where we stop um, being enchanted by the text. Like intellectual kind of engagement with literature doesn't need to distance us from it. So I did want to change the way that we define enchantment so that it can contain um, a lot, a much fuller range of responses to marvelous literature. It doesn't just need to be that we're like overwhelmed by them. It can also be, you know, that the text teaches us how to think more intelligently about them um, and, and how to kind of um distinguish what seems true from what actually is true um to like you know in Melusine to distinguish between um you know the the threat that the that magic might pose because you don't understand it um and the 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 wonderment that it provides Mm.
1: um before we come to the end of this uh interview I always ask this question uh if there's any other book or project you're currently working on? Is there any book we should soon expect?
0: Soon expect? No. (laughs) It takes me about (laughs) somewhere to eight to 10 years, it seems, to write a book. Um, But the new one's on hybrid animals. So it builds off of uh, the marvels in in the sense that hybrid animals are also marvels. Um, But there's just an absolute obsession with them, especially actually in Arabic philosophy, like Jad is obsessed with hybrid animals. And I'm just super intrigued at this point um, to understand why there is such fascination with them and also why, I mean, they knew how like mules and hinnies work. They knew that two animals when they procreate create a kind of synthetic third thing but they still represent sirens as like women from the Mm -hmm. waist up and fish or birds from the waist down and that kind of stitched together two different animals that are stitched together and they knew that that wasn't actually how hybrid hybridity worked so I just want to come up with um, an explanation um, for the philosophy and the literature again and its fascination with hybridity and like why that was such an interesting phenomenon to them
1: Professor Michelle Carnes, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you.